Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part four, four of four, on our study of pitfalls and errors in body CT, what they are and how to avoid them. Now, we left off with this slide. Unsuspected mesenteric arterial abnormalities may elude diagnosis when axial CT sections are interpreted without 3D rendering. And that statement in 2007 is still true today. One of the things we found is that often the axial images look fine and people will say normal. But when you look carefully at the celiac and SMA, there's often stenosis proximally or perhaps median awkward ligament compression or distally the vessel is occluded, particularly the SMA. In this article, the mesenteric lesions identified resulted in a change in patient management just by looking at the 3D and the sagittal views. So that becomes very, very important. I think what you need to really think about, and I said 3D mode, but I'm going to say 3D and sagittal. You need to look at that in all cases. Even if it looks normal on the axial, you need to quickly take a look at those sagittal views. It's very important. And pathology ranges from occlusion of the mesenteric artery to stenosis. Thinking about mesenteric occlusion, up to 75% of all bowel ischemia cases can be arterial thromboembolism or arterial thrombosis. Arterial embolism usually is in the mid-vessel and proximal is usually due to thrombosis. So again, when you have embolic phenomena, it's usually distally, and the ones, uh, these are the ones that are commonly missed. So if you look at this case, the celiac and the SMA look good. Look how good the SMA looks till it looks bad. There's a clot there, okay? Embolism. Now again, the vessel looks good, so if you looked very quickly, you would not worry about anything but it's distantly the thrombus is present. And since this was early at a time when you really could intervene, you're not seeing any changes in the flow. You're not seeing any changes in the bowel wall thickening. The patient had abdominal pain, but look, when you look clearly, look how impressive on that MIP images that thrombus indeed is. An important pitfall we've made, and I speak about this in some of the lectures on ischemic bowel, in cases of bowel ischemia, you have to make certain you look at the entire vessel. Now that's true in every time you look at the SMA, for example. But most of the time when people miss a thrombus, it's not proximally, it's gonna be distally. So going back to my point about pitfalls, the midline sagittal view on CT is great for things like SMA syndrome, vessel stenosis, median awkward ligament syndrome, obviously in staging neoplasms like pancreatic cancer where there's vessel involvement, and looking for mesenteric aneurysms, collaterals, or any form of mesenteric pathology. Now this idea about looking at the sagittals as a must also holds true when looking at uh, the spine or the abdomen. Uh, pathology in the uh, musculoskeletal system is often overlooked because we're not thinking about it. So it's very important to look very carefully. And the area I'll speak about is the spine. You really need to always look at the bone windows. That's true with every case. You always need to look at the soft tissue windows. What we do is we do routine sagittal uh, imaging. It's constructed by the technologist. Every single case, sagittal, coronal, constructed, so the radiologist doesn't need to spend more than a few seconds looking at it. It really allows for rapid review. And here's a simple example, abdominal pain in a patient, older patient, no IV contrast, there's a cyst in the right kidney. 
The spine looks like the genera of change, vascular calcification in the aorta. But when you look at the sagittal view, this patient now has collapse of the L1 vertebral body. The patient's osteopenic, that collapse was the cause of the patient's back pain, abdominal pain. It was not appreciated on the axial imaging. Now, you may know that one of the vendors, I think it's uh, AI Doc, got FDA approval for a um, app that simply looks at the spine, tells you if there's osteoporosis or not, and if there is any loss of height in vertebral bodies. And the reason that's a good app with AI is because people miss it all the time. This article by Cabray, most clinically important vertebral body compression fractures in non-trauma patients at risk for low bone mineral density may go unreported at abdominal CT if sagittal views are not routinely evaluated. That's a very good point. In this article, 2015 abdominal CT scans, uh, prospective diagnosis of a moderate or severe body compression fracture was not determined in 84% of cases. That's just terrible. You need to look very, very carefully. Also, I'll remind you, always look at the skin and soft tissues. Sometimes it gives you a hint of pathology. Think neurofibromatosis. Sometimes we see metastasis, uh, masses by the umbilicus, system Mary Joseph nodules can be a predictor of underlying malignancy. So you want to look carefully. Now, there are some things that have always been a problem to me. One is counting ribs. Now, rib fractures can be very subtle. So you need to look really carefully. But also, counting, is that the fifth rib, the sixth rib? It's often very difficult, or you spend a lot of time doing it to get it right. Many of the vendors now, and this is a Siemens one, uh, created these ways of counting ribs and stretching the ribs out in curved planar to allow you to have increased accuracy in the ribs. These curved planar reconstructions, this article by Ringel a couple years ago, helped with detecting chest fractures and getting correct precisely which rib it was. In this other article by Pregler very recently, the unfolded view enables significant time savings in the detection of rib fractures regardless of the reader's experience. In terms of accuracy, no advantage was noticeable for the experienced reader, but for the inexperienced reader, they clearly benefit. Therefore, one can conclude that the unfolded view can be a helpful diagnostic tool for the rapid assessment of patients with blunt thorax trauma. And we routinely do this in every case. So if you look at this example, this is just the axial images. And if you look carefully, you should see that first uh, fractured rib, okay? It's not displaced, but it's an important fracture because that's often associated with vascular injury. You can see it, though not great, but you can see it in the coronal view. So again, you always want to be looking at coronal views. You see there's some soft tissue injury nearby. Okay, so there you see it pretty nicely. There's some trauma in the chest. There's the vessel map. So we're looking at the vessels. The vessels were intact. And that's what you typically would do. But this software now will find all the ribs, will label all the vertebral bodies. So your counting really makes, uh, it's really easy to count what you're looking at. And then it lays the ribs out just like that. And now you can see them. And then when, you, when you're doing it live, you can rotate them. You want to be careful. If the patient moves during the study, you can potentially overcall a rib fracture, which is always the case. But here you can lay it out so you see it better. 
And of course, as you rotate and lay it out, here's the rib fracture on the first rib. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Look how easy it is to count the ribs and know precisely that only one rib was involved. So it takes you just a few seconds, but it saves you time. So it's important we do this routinely on all trauma cases. I wonder if we should do it almost in all cases, particularly oncology patients, we might be looking for rib fractures and subtle rib, fra rib fractures or subtle rib lesions perhaps can easily be missed. Let me talk a little bit now in terms of misdiagnosis and pancreatic mass detection. Mistakes can be made. Sometimes you find a mass and you think it's pancreas, but it's really peripancreatic. It rises in the duodenum like a gist tumor. Okay, well, at least you found the lesion. Other mistakes, missing islet cell tumors. They're small, they're vascular, easy to miss. You could also make the mistake in reverse of calling a splenic artery aneurysm an islet cell tumor, or you can call a splenule an islet cell tumor. Those are some mistakes. Also, in terms of pancreatic mass detection, I'll speak, and I have spoken to you about the importance of a pancreatic duct, that one of the most common and probably the most common reason people misdiagnosis in pancreatic cancer is just saying there's a dilated pancreatic duct and blowing it off. When you see a dilated pancreatic duct with abrupt stopping, you have to be suspicious there's a tumor present. Whether you do a, a MR scan or go right to EUS, you need to do something. Now, one of the things we are seeing now with neuroendocrine tumors, because CT is so sensitive, we are picking up small neuroendocrine tumors. The standard of care these days is under one centimeter to simply follow these lesions. Protocols are critical, right? If you look at this case and look at the pancreas, it looks normal. Venous face imaging, normal. But if you have arterial phase imaging, let's look at the head of the pancreas. Look at that obvious mass. Two centimeters, you missed an obvious tumor. The problem was the tumor did not distort the mass of the pancreas. The pancreas looked normal. There was no duct dilatation. Again, your accuracy is so dependent on the protocol. Here it is very nicely again near the GDA. And again, just look at those two images side by side. Obvious mass, obvious normal. Again, it's one of the challenges. Now, of course, the challenge is you can say, we don't routinely do dual phase imaging, which is the, it's true, but if you're worrying about pancreas, you better do dual phase imaging. If you're worrying about neuroendocrine tumors anywhere from the small bowel, to the mesentery, to the pancreas, to the liver, to the adrenal, you better do dual phase imaging. Now, again, one of the challenges we know is the fact we have limited uh, views. If radiation dose wasn't an issue, of course, we would have multiple views all the time. So it is always going to be a challenge for us. It's also important to look very carefully, right? So in this case, um, it was really hard to see the lesion. I'm showing you a few different images. If you look really hard here in the body, perhaps on that arterial phase, you may see some textural change. The reality is this was a good example of where the neuroendocrine tumor is seen best in the venous phase right there. So although we have rules, and there it is, venous, look how obvious it is. Although we have rules, what works best? It's not always the case. We're working on new things like texture mapping. Here's some cinematic rendering with texture mapping, trying to look and pick up the subtlest changes in the texture. That's one of the things where AI will help. 
And here you can see the same case with the texture mapping in arterial phase imaging. The lesion is seen because the texture is different. And yes, as you go to venous, it's more obvious, but it's right there. So again, being able to pick up small lesions in not the optimal phase, perhaps, will be something we could be doing in the future. But again, look very, very carefully. Lesions can indeed be very subtle. Another example would be in patients with renal cell carcinoma, you're restaging. Now, sometimes people just say, get a venous phase imaging. Well, renal cells, particularly clear cells, when they metastasize, and they can metastasize 10 or 15 years later, they're typically very vascular. So if you look at this case in a patient with left nephrectomy, you look at the patient's pancreas, it looks fine. It's falling down into the renal fossa. But once you gave IV contrast in the arterial phase, look how obvious that lesion is. You missed a three centimeter mass. I'll go back, even in retrospect. Okay, maybe you could point to something there in retrospect. Everything's visible in retrospect. But this was metastatic renal cell to the pancreas, very obvious when you had arterial phase imaging. So selecting the right protocols become very, very important. Again, there's no substitute to thinking about the protocols. Once or twice a year, you need to update your protocols. Another example here, sometimes people say, oh, the patient had nephrectomy, we don't want to give IV contrast. If patient has normal renal function, give IV contrast. Here, the study looks fine, right? Left kidney looks good. Bowel falls into the right renal fossa. But now, look at all of those mets you missed in the pancreas. Pancreatic metastasis from renal cell often occurs a decade after initial presentation. So even though you say, oh, the patient is 10 years out, what am I worrying about? You have to be very careful. And look how you missed six or seven metastases to the pancreas. Even in retrospect, that pancreas looks normal. And if you have venous phase imaging, the pancreas also looks normal. So again, the only way to make the diagnosis was in the correct phase. Now, other things in terms of pancreas, some of the challenges, things that look like pancreatic cancer, autoimmune pancreatitis, groove pancreatitis, and that small percent of patients that has both pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis and cancer. I'll briefly talk on autoimmune pancreatitis. Uh, it's an interesting diagnosis. It's an inflammatory process, lymphoplasmocytic infiltration, uh, where it looks almost identical to pancreatic cancer on the imaging, but also clinically. Important things in making the diagnosis, elevated IgG4 levels, but that's only in about half the cases. The thing about autoimmune pancreatitis, if you suspect it, patients are given 40 milligrams of prednisone, for basically two weeks, and the pancreas will shrink down and you'll make the diagnosis. It's interesting clinical presentation, more common in older patients, same age as pancreatic cancer, more common in men. And look at the presentation, jaundice, abdominal pain, weight loss, diabetes, sounds exactly like pancreatic cancer. Sometimes you get lucky, there's extra pancreatic findings that help you, and that's particularly true when you see changes of decreased attenuation in the kidneys. But again, the CA-99 can be elevated. So again, it's really going to be a challenge. Um, and we have seen patients go to surgery with autoimmune pancreatitis. One of the reasons we have to really think a patient has negative biopsy times two, and it looks like pancreatic cancer, perhaps rethink, could it be autoimmune pancreatitis? 
Typical CT appearances is featureless gland, homogeneous isohypotenuating parenchyma with a non-dilated or diffusely narrowed pancreatic duct. You don't see that classic dilated duct as in pancreatic cancer and this halo around the gland. So here you see the gland is enlarged, but it's like a sausage configuration. It kind of has that classic halo, very classic for autoimmune pancreatitis. Another case, here the gland is large, but there's no dilated duct. I guess maybe you think about lymphoma, but this is the look of autoimmune pancreatitis. After two weeks of steroids, look how nice the pancreas indeed looks. And another example, here's one with autoimmune pancreatitis, but here's their renal involvement. And those patchy low-density appearance in the kidneys, which at first make you think about infarct or inflammation, putting everything together, that's the classic autoimmune kidney involvement, IG4 disease, and autoimmune pancreatitis. Beautiful example, and look how nice those kidneys look on the coronal views. Now, um, an important thing about misdiagnosis we know errors are going to happen. We said that at the beginning of the talk. One of the ways we've tried to avoid error or try to learn is we have a multidisciplinary conference within radiology every Wednesday, which I do run. I show interesting cases. I show miscases. I show cases that teach a lesson. So I think the best way to do things going forward is to have conferences and discuss things so everybody is on the same page. We all do peer review, you're required to, but I often feel that peer review is not done intensely. It kind of makes people a little bit uncomfortable. When you have a conference and you go over cases and you don't point fingers, I think everybody learns and everybody is in it together. It works really well. Now, for CT reading, should you use checklists? Will checklists decrease errors? A checklist only for residents and fellows or for the faculty. More and more we're doing things with checklists. I think that's the future. I'm not a big fan. Most senior radiologists are not, but it's the way it's going and perhaps it's helpful. Uh, I'm not always sure it will help with errors because often people have pre-filled in studies where it says normal stomach and the stomach is not normal perhaps, but it's something that I think is helpful. We also have worked on apps like this is an app for pancreatic mass, how to work through a pancreatic mass on your iPhone or iPad. It's kind of a nice app. You go through the questions. Is there a mass present? If yes, is the mass uh, cystic solid? You answer. And then if you said um, it was cystic and solid, we give you some choices. It gives you some pearls. And it's a way of thinking about things. So perhaps it's one of those things where you're not going to use it on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's something that you can use to kind of work through an approach in your mind. And I think particularly residents and fellows, but also attendings on a brush-up can really take advantage of this. Now, what is going to happen in the future? I think one of the things we're reading about every day is really AI. Will AI be helpful? And whether it's this article on picking up lung nodules or the work we've been doing with the Felix Project, looking and teaching the computer to recognize the various organs, recognize the pancreas, which you can see here with high accuracy, and then be able to pick up tumors. So I think we're always going to make mistakes. This George Bernard Shaw quote, success does not consist in never making mistakes, but in never making the same one a second time. 
Now, I'm afraid to say that we probably will make the same mistake a second or third time, but perhaps not. And the closer we look, the more we learn, the better we're going to do. So that's a four-part look at errors. I think if I was going to be, if I wanted to, I probably could do a 40-part talk on errors. And in fact, one of the things we're going to be doing over the next few months on YouTube is having weekly five-minute YouTube blasts, kind of a TikTok on YooHoo, or YooHoo, on YouTube. YooHoo was a drink when I was a kid in New York. But on YouTube, we're going to be there. So hopefully we'll see you there. And thanks very much for your attention. Have a great day. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.